Welcome to Saints. In this podcast, we'll be discovering and discussing fascinating insights to topics and events found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the latter days. This new four-volume narrative is a history of the Restoration. You can also read it and all the material we'll be discussing today on LDS.org or on your Gospel Library app. And now, Saints. I'm Ben Godfrey, and today I have two wonderful guests with me. First, we have a PhD historian with the Church History Library, Jenny Reeder. Hey, I'm excited to be here too. I love church history. And we have uh, with us again, Sarah Eyring. Sarah has recently read Saints Volume 1 and will be sharing her thoughts and questions in our episode today. Welcome, Sarah. I'm happy to be here too. Thank you for having me. Today we're going to be talking about Chapter 11, Ye Shall Receive My Law. And this is the moment um, in church history when we begin to have some people in Kirtland accepting the gospel and uh, they're sort of left on their alone for a little while. The missionaries leave. Jenny, tell us a little bit what happens after the missionaries are gone and what's the kind of mood in, in Kirtland? After the missionaries leave, these people are so excited for this restored gospel. It's also a time of interest in restorationism. So this is a group of people who are really into the Bible and the New Testament. Uh, they love the spiritual gifts that are promised in the New Testament, and so they use them excitedly. They feel like they now have this authority to speak in tongues and to, to bless one another and to have faith that they will receive further information. Let's listen to a little clip here from the book uh, that talks about this uh, enthusiasm for spiritual gifts. As Joseph visited church members, he saw their enthusiasm for spiritual gifts and their sincere desire to pattern their lives after the saints in the New Testament. Joseph loved the gifts of the Spirit himself and knew they had a role in the restored church. But he worried that some saints in Kirtland were getting carried away in their pursuit of them. He could see that he had serious work to do. The Kirtland saints had more than doubled the size of the church, but it was clear they needed additional direction from the Lord. What does that mean, they needed additional direction? What was going on that Joseph needed to correct? Well, for one thing, I love how Joseph talks about how the church is a church of order. And so we sort of have all these exciting, charismatic gifts happening. We have people speaking in tongues. We have people um, taking on different formats or different forms. The, the man acting like a baboon, um, the, the woman who shook like the shakers. And so there just needed to sort of be some unification and some understanding of what these spiritual gifts meant and the proper way that God intended them to be used. Yeah, there, there's another little section here from the book that I love that kind of explains that. As Joseph visited church members, he saw their enthusiasm for spiritual gifts and their sincere desire to pattern their lives after the saints in the New Testament. Joseph loved the gifts of the Spirit himself and knew they had a role in the restored church. But he worried that some saints in Kirtland were getting carried away in their pursuit of them. He could see that he had serious work to do. The Kirtland saints had more than doubled the size of the church, but it was clear they needed additional direction from the Lord. Yes, and it's interesting because Kirtland is such a crux of these Pentecostal activities. When the Kirtland Temple is dedicated a few years later, they also experience this manifestation of the Spirit. 
again, Joseph teaches the women years later in Nauvoo, in the Nauvoo Relief Society, that they also have to have order in this use of spiritual gifts. So a couple of missionaries left um, to go preach the gospel to the Indians. Jenny, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. After reading the Book of Mormon, these people felt such a call to reach out to what they termed the Lamanites, the American Indians. And so Joseph Smith sent a group of people to west of the, the border of the United States to the frontier, and in Missouri particularly. And some of them stopped in Kirtland on the way and spread the gospel there to the white settlers there. Um, and then the re- uh, they went to Missouri, and they particularly met with a specific group of Indians, the Delaware. And were they were very receptive to the message that the missionaries had to bring? I think it was probably a little frustrating for the Delaware. If we think about American history, the Indians, all of the Native Americans, had not been treated very fairly. They'd, they'd lost much of their land, and some of it was sacred land. They'd been pushed west um, with Andrew Jackson and and the... Delaware Indians were some of those, obviously, in Missouri, they're called the Delaware, so they've obviously been pushed sure. west. So they're a little bit wary of anyone white, anyone American or of European descent coming into them and telling them, again, what to do. But it seems like they were kind of receptive to it, that they actually welcomed the joy of the gospel message. Is that right? They were. It was exciting to see that the missionaries who came weren't there to tell them to move further west or to give up their properties, but was were there to teach them of their divine inheritance and connection with God. That would be especially interesting because, of course, the Book of Mormon is about their particular ancestors. So that would have been a really um, interesting and new message, I'm sure. Yes, and it connects them in a very distinct way to God. They may have used different language or different words to define him but they found it very fascinating and very exciting to see that this was a part of who they were. That's really wonderful. Let's go back to uh, to Kirtland for a moment. Um, as we mentioned just briefly, the saints there are living, or some of them anyway, are living in a way that they're sharing resources. Let me play a clip here about that. Saints who chose to obey the law were to consecrate their property to the church by deeding it to the bishop. He would then return land and goods to them as an inheritance in Zion, according to the needs of their families. Saints who obtained inheritances were to act as God's stewards, using the land and tools they had received, and returning whatever was unused to help the needy and build Zion and the temple. So we have our first first bishop of the church, Edward Partridge. He's called as a bishop, and he's managing these stewardships or this law of consecration. Jenny, how did, how did that work, and what was it like to live there during this time? First of all, I think it's important to recognize that this is an idea or a doctrine that is sort of shifting and developing, and it we see that shift and that development and that change over time, not only in this chapter, but in the whole rest of the book and in the history of the church. We continue to see that shift and change. At this time in Kirtland, Joseph Smith has asked Edward Partridge to sort of direct the efforts, to gather together the resources that the members of the church had, to spread them out, to make them a little more equal, and also to use 
those resources to purchase land in Missouri. He, I think Joseph's big concern was that the, there was this Zion community where there were no poor among them, that they took care of each other and that everyone had a stewardship and was accountable in some way for that. So the members in, in Kirtland are living in this way. Joseph has put some order into place. What's happening back in New York? We, we have the earliest members of the church, Joseph's longest supporters. What's going on there, and what are they, I guess, about to do? There are two main branches of the church in New York, the Colesville Saints and the Fayette Saints. And Joseph has asked them to gather to the Ohio which is what we see in the Doctrine and Covenants. And so they are making preparations to come. Lucy Mack Smith leads the saints from Fayette. There are about 80 of them. And I, I think it's so fascinating that she's actually leading them because there are capable men in the company, but none of them want to lead this group. And so she's the one that makes the arrangements and p- procures the food and the lodging. They decided to wait until spring. Joseph and Emma had come to Kirtland in the winter. But these saints decided the easiest way to travel from New York to Kirtland, Ohio, was on the waterways. So they had to wait for the canals and the lake to thaw. So they're basically renting passage on boats to make it down the Erie Canal and across the Great Lakes to get as close as they could to Kirtland. As close as they could in the fastest cheapest way possible. Again, we have to remember this is a really exciting time in American history where the the canal transportation and water transportation was huge. And that's a little bit different. We today get on an airplane, but back then it was so much easier just to take the water routes. And how many people were coming, just kind of r- roughly? In Lucy's company, there were about 80 saints. I don't know about you guys, but the last time I organized 80 people <laughs> to travel as a group, some of them like were unpleasant some of the time and sometimes people were didn't like the food that we got was everything wonderful for Lucy and her traveling group of course no I'm just (laughs) kidding no I think it may have been like herding cats she dealt with a lot of women complaining they wanted to stay on their rocking chairs on their porches at home she dealt with people that weren't prepared with the proper resources and food Part of that, though, was because they did get stuck at one of the canal locks that was broken, so they had to spend an extra night and therefore use their resources. But she also notes that the children were unruly, that they were little hooligan kids running around like crazy and that the parents weren't taking control of them. Let's listen to a little clip here from the book about this journey with Lucy and this company of 80 making their way to the Ohio. On the boat, the saints seemed discouraged. Many were hungry, and everyone was wet and cold. They saw no way forward and started to argue with each other. The arguments grew heated and attracted the attention of onlookers. Worried the saints were making a spectacle of themselves, Lucy confronted them. "'Where is your faith? Where is your confidence in God?' she demanded." If you will all of you raise your desires to heaven, that the ice may be broken up and we be set at liberty, as sure as the Lord lives, it will be done. At that moment, Lucy heard a noise like bursting thunder as the ice in the harbor split wide enough for the boat to steam through. The captain ordered his men to their posts, and they steered the craft through the narrow opening, passing dangerously close to the ice on both sides of them. 
Stunned and grateful, the saints join together in prayer on the deck. I love that story, and it actually gives me some courage when I'm feeling a little faithless about things that sort of seem impossible in my life, especially because they they prayed together. There was a unity in of their faith that brought, a pa- brought to pass this miracle of the ice breaking and allowing them to get through. And I, I love especially that Lucy was the one to say, okay, guys, buck up, let's pray, let's join together in um, pleading to heaven for help. And, and heaven came through, of course, but it was a result of their faith and, be- and of her leadership. And so that story inspires me totally when I'm having moments of doubt. I think, well, there was that time that Lucy and her whole company got through, and it was only by heaven's hand. It's interesting, too, because the other company of saints, when they arrived at the Buffalo Harbor for Lake Erie, and the ice was like completely still frozen over, the other company was like, people here are really grouchy. Don't tell them you're Mormon or they're not going (laughs) to give you anything that you need. And the first thing Lucy did was stand up and say, we're Mormons. Of course. We've got this great book. Um, And I think I love that, though, is the way that she was able to unite the saints. I wonder if part of it comes from in 1830, so this is probably just six months earlier, Joseph Smith had received the revelation to Emma Smith, section 25 today, telling her that she needed to expound the scriptures and exhort the church. And that at the end of that section, he tells her, this is my voice unto all. And surely Lucy Mack Smith must have known about this. And she must have taken that seriously, that charge to expound, to teach and make clear and remove obscurity and to exhort, to cheer or to encourage and to uplift. And that's exactly what she did. And I love that it was only their boat that made it all the way through the ice. That was really amazing. And I think that it's cool that she's not subtle about her faith, as you say. She's very bold about it. Yes, she is. She's that way her whole life with everything, every encounter, every relationship. She's always encouraging people to read the Bible or read the Book of Mormon or to come to understand this God who removes our stumbling blocks. Thomas Marsh is another uh, character in our story here. And Thomas is, is going to be making his way from New York down to, to, to the Ohio. Um, he wrote a letter, and uh, let's, let's just listen to a little clip from the book. Um, about this. In the same letter, Thomas shared the news of the gathering. The Lord calleth for all to repent, he declared, and assemble at Ohio speedily. He did not know if the saints were going to Ohio to build Zion or if they were preparing for a more ambitious move in the future. But it did not matter. If the Lord commanded them to gather to Missouri or even to the Rocky Mountains a thousand miles beyond the nation's western border, he was ready to go. So, Jenny, when I read this the first time, I remember thinking, is this some creative foreshadowing that our writers are adding to this story, or where did this come from? Because it just seems a little too convenient that here they are in Ohio, and we know that they're not going to stay in Ohio, they're not going to stay in Missouri, they're going to come all the way west of the Rocky Mountains. How in the world would Thomas Marsh have known that? Well, first of all, I have to say that we do have fantastic authors and writers, and they do help us to see all of this in a really simple, clear way with a very great narrative arc. But if you actually go to the sources and that letter that Thomas wrote, he does say specifically that he will do whatever it takes, whether that be, he says, to take our march to the 
Grand Prairies in the Missouri Territory or the Shining Mountains 1,500 or 2,000 miles west from us, we do not know. So we know that that was on his mind from the very beginning. That, those were his words. It's really pretty incredible to find all these resources and to bring them together in a way that tells this amazing story. But also, again, I just uh, remind our listeners, if you're ever curious about the details, click through on the footnotes, follow it through to the source, and you can see exactly where this information came from. As Steve Harper told us in our first episode, this isn't a fiction. This is a true story. I think it's also exciting because it is a true story and it is a narrative. I love the way that the researchers have have culled their research and brought together these sources. But also there's another thing that's really cool are these topic essays. So if you have if you're questioning how the bishop thing worked out, you can click on the footnote and go to the, the topic essay on bishops. And speaking of topics, in this chapter we learn for the first time that Joseph, as he's working on the Bible, has the, the Bible translation with, with Sidney Rigdon, he, he learns about plural marriage. And that idea enters his mind of this, this thing that we would call polygamy. And I would just invite our listeners to go to the topic. Um, in future episodes, we're going to learn all kinds of things about plural marriage and its impact on the church and, and the people. But even at this early moment, uh, here we are in chapter 11, the topic of plural marriage comes up, and you can go and read the topic to understand the full information we have about it. I think it's interesting that what brings it up in Joseph's mind or in his prayers to Heavenly Father is, I think, a concern that there it seems sort of not totally um, in line with what he knows about marriage, you know, um, and he worries, how could these prophets of old, who of course were connected to heaven and and in no way, um, you, you know, sinning, how could they also have been having plural marriage and, and multiple wives? And I think that that concerns them. And I think that's sort of inspiring for us that whenever we have a question or when something seems sort of out of line or, or we, we can't quite place the truth, we can always turn to Heavenly Father. And of course, he does answer. And it's sort of a surprising answer. But I think that's still inspiring for us to know that heaven is he, God will answer our questions and our prayers. So what is the answer that he receives initially in, in answer to his question? So initially he receives this answer that a full restoration of the church requires the restoration of this practice. And I also, I think this is just like the bishop. This is something that develops and unfolds over time. And here in Kirtland, we're just seeing the very beginning of it. I think it takes Joseph a really long time to wrap his brain around it, his brain that is so situated in 19th century America and the concept there of family and marriage. So this is just the beginning of it, and we'll see how it expands throughout Nauvoo and through Utah as well. Speaking of family, Joseph and Emma have been trying to have a family, and um, it hasn't worked out, really. Emma's pregnant uh, with twins. The twins are born, but, but die right away. Emma is extremely ill. Can you tell us a little bit about what happens to bring children into Joseph and Emma's life? Bless their hearts. And I don't mean that in a trite way. Um, I think that... Part of the situation was that they'd been moving back and forth so much, and they didn't have a, 
a true home where they had a consistent life and a consistent lifestyle. So this, these were not their first children to lose, nor were they the last children to lose. But I think in a really tender way and in, a, in an interesting uh, situation is that this is the same time of Julia Murdoch, who had just given birth to twins, and she passed away. And so when Joseph heard about her death, he sent this message to her husband, John, and, and told them that they were willing to help or raise these two twin And he recognized his inability to provide for these newborn babies on his own. And so he gave his twins to Joseph and Emma Smith. I don't know that we have any sort of statistics that could tell us how frequently this practice happened or, you know, something that we could say, like, how how common was this? This has to be a moment where this is one of those tender mercies. She's lost twins. Joseph has lost twins. And somehow the Lord has seen fit to bring twins into their life. And also, what a blessing for John Murdoch. What's he going to do? It's not like there's Similac down at the store. This is a very amazing thing that happens to, to care for these children. It is. And I think we see this several times in this difficult uh, lifestyle or life experience. We see this later in Kirtland when Hiram Smith's wife, Jerusha, passes away. Um, This is a real struggle for these people, and it turned out to be such a great blessing for Emma and Joseph. I have to say, I think that it's interesting to see that um, people who were trying desperately to do what heaven wanted them to do and were totally dedicating every waking moment to bringing about the gospel and building the kingdom, they were not exempt from really hard, hard trials, things, some things that those of us today won't have to go through because, of course, we live in more modern times, but they were not saved from those just because they were trying to do what heaven wanted them to do. And I think that that's clear as well in the Book of Mormon, which Joseph translated that Heavenly Father, while he is very caring and very merciful, will allow us to experience life so that we can have tests of faith and moments of reaching out to him and it's motivating to think that even when you're doing just what's right, if you're also experiencing hard times, it's not because you are doing, uh, you're being punished or you're doing something wrong. It's just because that's life and it's uh, the joy of, of learning and coming closer to God. So often I think we put these pioneer people on pedestals and we think they were so heroic and so brave and so faithful. But I think once we take a real look at the grittiness of their lives and recognize how hard it was and how difficult their, not only their living situations, but their relationships and the development of this doctrine and and practice. And I think it's really important to recognize that they're real people too. And that makes me feel better knowing that I can deal with my trials and still deal with the grittiness of life. It's easy when you when you have the ability to look back, when you know how the story turns out, we can say, oh, it's going to be okay. It's fine. Um, but they didn't know that, of course. And we don't know that. Even this, this story of the twins, it's later Julia, who's the, the Smith child that lives the longest, that cares for Emma in her old age. You know, Emma didn't know that at this moment. She was just grateful to, to get some children to take care of. And so it, I find it interesting that with looking back, it's so easy to see the pattern. But at the time, 
it isn't. And, uh, and maybe that's true for us today as well. Thank you, Jenny, for joining us today. And thank you also, Sarah, for joining us. We remind our listeners to learn more about Saints. You can visit saints.lds.org where you can see our latest videos, topics, and chapters, as well as go to the Gospel Library app in the Church History section where you can find Saints. Download this podcast and many others. You can always visit mormonchannel.org. I'm Ben Godfrey. Thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us today for Saints. And don't forget to read more of this historical narrative on lds.org or on your Gospel Library app. Join us again for our next episode where we'll once again discover fascinating insights of church history found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the latter days.